Apple presents Meet the Author. Please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian, and tonight's guest, author of Fresh Off the Boat, available now in the iBook store, Eddie Wong. What's up? How's it going? Hello. Oh, man, it's brick outside. It is, uh, it is frosty. And this is my first time doing q and I'm a little nervous, Eddie. Really? You invented Q&A on the internet, too. I, well, Reddit did, yes. to be fair. But I, I never actually get to ask the questions, man. So this is going to be a first. But I'm excited. You guys excited? Yeah, I'll come now. All right. Excellent. Well, dude, you... I, I mean... Whether it's cooking, whether it's writing, whether it's drug dealing, whether it, like, you've done... Damn, you just blew up my spot. So you much. blew up my spot real heavy. <laughs> spoiler, spoiler. Eddie's been busy uh, in enterprise over the years. Dude, I, I, I love the book. I love the Vice show. I think you're going to give us a sample uh, from the book. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this chapter here. This is um, page 207, and it's from the chapter in the book when... I discovered American football, and I wanted to play football, so it's pretty funny. I went to, uh, my parents put me in a private school that year, so it was extra, extra funny. Um, so here it goes. In seventh grade, my parents enrolled me at Trinity Prep. I was dumb excited because Dave went there too. We couldn't wait to go to school together, and he told me about the football team. I registered late for the team because it was my first year at the school, but the coach, Mr. Rock, let me start practicing in early August. They didn't have enough helmets, so I was the only kid without one for the first week. Wong, what position you play? Quarterback? No, really, what position you play? I play quarterback, I got plays and stuff. Let's start your wide receiver, see how that goes. Organized football was a lot different than street ball. I always played quarterback in the yard, but standing five foot four in seventh grade, I wasn't about to start a quarterback. I'm kind of glad there weren't smartphones back then because a midget Chinaman telling his coach to start him a quarterback would be viral video gold. Almost like Eli Porter freestyles. Yet, no matter what, in my own head, I was a quarterback. Playing wide receiver really didn't start off very well. I always rocked my pants with a sag, so I wasn't very comfortable in football tights. I asked for a size big, and when I ran routes, the shits would start falling and my hip pads would flop all over the place. I was too small to run the crossing routes I was good at, and I was too slow to run the go routes guys my size needed to. It was a constant struggle in my life. Big man trapped in a little man's body. Charles Barkley shit. The coaches laughed and the other players gave me a hard time, but I just kept working. After our first game, it became clear. I'd never see the light of day at receiver. Coach Rock switched me to defensive tackle and right guard. It made no sense. When they lined us up at offensive line, it looked like Niagara Falls. Tall guy, tall guy, tall guy, Eddie Wong. <laughs> the fuck you doing here, son? I honestly think Coach Rock thought I was helpless and put me at line so that I'd quit. The first rep I ever took on the line, he put me at left tackle and had Kwame line up across from me. Kwame was the biggest dude on the team, played defensive end, and was a straight terror on the edge. I started talking to myself. Yo, you got this, son. Ain't nothing. Just get low. Get leverage and send this boy packing. Blue nine, blue nine, yellow, yellow, hut. Call me fired out the line and I started to shuffle back. Before I could even set my feet, boom. He just chucked me with two hands on a bull rush and I went flying. Literally two feet off the ground, whiplash on my neck and I tumbled over twice before coming to a stop. Dead fucking meat. Wong, get up Wong. What? Wong, can you hear me? Call me? 
<laughs> no, this isn't Kwame, it's Coach Rock. Get up, Wong. Coach Rock was stumped. He had no idea what to do with me. I absolutely sucked at organized football, but I never once thought about quitting. In some crazy, sadistic, twisted way, I was having the time of my life. I was part of something. It wasn't Chinese school. It wasn't family. It was good old American fun, and I loved it. When the helmets and pads were on for 60 minutes, I wasn't Chinese anymore. I was part of the team. Instead of being singled out and being laughed at for being Chinese, I was being laughed at for totally sucking at football. It was a relief. Mom kept trying to get me to stop playing because I came home injured in some form or other every single day. She used to watch me get tossed around by Billy G in the backyard or wait on the sidelines to play at practice. She'd be crying when I came home, but she never told me why I got, but she never told me why until I got older. I had no idea she was watching because she always hid from view, but my mom was always there. Without ever asking me, she understood that I needed it, but wished I didn't. I wasn't built for this American life. I was like a little shih tzu trying to run with the pit bulls. That was Dave and me. You see it a lot. There's a toy dog barking leading the big goofy dog around. Isaiah and Rodman, AI and Dikembe, Eddie and Dave. Life doesn't always make sense. Three weeks into the season, Coach Rock introduced new drills into practice. The first one was the Indian run. The entire team, 50 plus kids, all ran around the football field. You had to stay in line and the last guy in line had to sprint to get to the front until everyone did it twice. The first time we did it, the team thought to slow down a little bit when it was my turn. Everyone figured I was the slowest and it was to their benefit for me to get it over with as soon as possible since another 49 guys had to do it too. Coach Rock was a wily motherfucker though. It made the team run even faster when it was my turn. He was on to it. I understood why the guys wanted to slow down and I understood why Coach Rock wouldn't allow it. It was a pivotal moment. I looked at the ground, clenched my teeth, pumped my arms, and ran as fast as I fucking could. Couldn't nobody help me but myself this time. I just kept chopping my feet. Up, down, up, down, up, down. My pads, helmet, pants, everything was too big. Shit looked like a yard sale. By the time I looked up, I was a good bit in front of the first guy and snot was coming out of my damn ears. 20 minutes later, the drill was over and I was over by the, fu I was over by the fence puking my guts out. Break it down. At the end of practice, we'd all get in a big circle and break it down. Coach Rock would yell some random shit and we'd yell back. But I was so tired, I literally passed out on the ground. Look at Wong. This guy left it all out on the field today, y'all. Woo! I couldn't believe it. Coach Rock said something nice about me, and the team was cheering. Good shit, Wong. Listen up, team. Wong's the smallest guy on the team, but he gave it up today. If we practice like this, we'll win some damn games this year. So player of the day today, Eddie Wong. Let's hear it. To that point in my life, I'd never been more proud of myself. For 12 years, I really never once did anything that made me proud. There were, there were things that made my mom or dad happy, but this was mine. It wasn't much to most kids. I mean, I was basically getting recognized for being straight dog shit, ignoring that I was straight dog shit, and doing anything in my power just to maintain my dog shittiness. I think on Urban Dictionary, that's a definition for insanity, or a Michael Bay film. It was just one good day of practice, yet it meant everything to me. There was hope. All right. Now, can we, can we talk about the Rudy moment that happened a little bit later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Rudy moment, like a few pages later, is, is pretty funny. But um, what did you want to give, talk about? Give him a teaser. No, so, you know, what happened ended up, I dedicated my entire energy every waking hour to football. And I stopped paying attention to math and science, which Asian children are supposed to pay attention to. And um, my mom got really pissed because I started getting like C's and D's 
in class. So she pulled me off the football team. And this is after a few weeks where I started being player of the week or player of the day every single day after practice because I had literally run until I puked every single day. Like I just loved football and it really meant something to me because it wasn't something I was supposed to be good at. It wasn't something I was supposed to enjoy. And I liked stepping outside of like my identity as an Asian American. But my mom took me off the team because she just liked to ruin anything that I loved. <laughs> and... Um, Coach Rock begged my mom, because he was a math teacher at the school, too, and he was like, look, Mrs. Wong, like, I really respect that you care more about school than sports, because a lot of parents aren't that way, but you got to let me have Eddie back on the team. And, and my mom's like, he stinks. Like, why do you want him back on the team? And he's like, no, like, you know, he's an, he's an inspirational kid because, like, he does stink, but he practices really, really hard. And I actually... Through all this time, even being player of the day, I never got into any game. Like, I never got into the game. And he kind of made me like a real-life Rudy. And the day I came back, my mom let me play because Coach Rock started tutoring me in math. And, and Well, no, he didn't tutor me in math. He found somebody else to help me because he was a grade up. But he made sure I got my grades up. And, and for one of the, like, third to last games of the season, I came back and I met up the team in, like, an auditorium room and they had just finished screening Rudy and the whole team was jumping up and down like excited I was back and they actually they he actually put me in the game that time and I broke through the line and I was such an idiot I got through actually I went so fast I got through and I was an idiot because I waited until the quarterback handed off the ball to the running back to tackle him <laughs> <laughs> and the coach was like, you could have sacked him. And I was like, I don't know, man. I'm just usually not even here that early. So I waited for the running back. <laughs> Very polite. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I'm not used to tackling quarterbacks, coach. <laughs> but Dude, um, I, yeah. I, I, I only played one year of football. And I, I also sucked and never got any PT except for one game. And I'm reading this and I'm like, holy shit, Eddie, this is my life. The only difference in terms of the football play was I stumbled forward and kind of inadvertently hit the quarterback on my one moment. But I look at this and I'm just like, dude, there is, this book is full of so much of this just not giving a fuck. Yeah. Just do, following, like, following your own way, following your heart. What, in, in all the talks you've given, all the people you've talked to since, like, what is the best piece of advice you can give out to someone based on all the experiences you've had and all of that? Well, I think that, you know, I'm a, I really like reading the Tao Te Ching, and I learned a lot from that and also from my own life, is that when you, try to, when, you, when you try to do things because you think you're supposed to, or there's, you know, for identity, right? I don't think that people should be doing things because of your skin or your eyes or, or where you're from. I don't feel people should have this pressure to live up to the stereotype or, or, or a stigmatic identity and I think that's very important to be like, I am who I am, and there are Asians in mountains, there's Asians in lakes, there's Asians in villages, and there's Asians in cities, and there's, there's black and white people all over the place as well, you know? And, and I think that it's very important for people to realize that the, like, life is about choice. You have a choice. And, and if you're in a society or you're in a situation where you don't have choice, and you think that you, know, you are being silenced, it's very, very important to break out. You have a duty to yourself and others of your ilk to, to break out and, and resist that shit. And um, the other thing I think is that you also shouldn't ever feel like there's any one thing you have to have. 
you know, a lot of times in, 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 in business, in, in, in your creative life or even like your romantic life or whatever, as soon as there's something that you care about so much that you have to have it, it poisons you. You know, because then that that thing controls you and you've lost control of yourself. So I think it's very important. Like the Tao talks about letting go of control so that you can regain control. And and I think that's something I meet a lot of people like I got to open a restaurant. I always wanted to be a chef. And I'm like, chill, <laughs> you know, like you got to chill because, you know, an occupation should not define your life or who you are. There's I've I've gained a lot of things and I've lost a lot of things. And, and I'll tell you what. Your self-confidence and, and your, your acceptance of yourself, it doesn't, it doesn't actually correlate to those things, you know? So I think it's very important for people to like have self-worth regardless of things they can hold on to, poles they can grasp. Damn. All right. Now, dude, the, I, I've seen the word inspirational thrown around all over the internet when people talk about you. You're such an inspiration and you're so inspirational, such a role model. I know Charles Barkley was a role model of yours despite everything he said about not being a role model. How do you feel when people call you inspirational and a role model? No, I, I think it's funny, man. Um, I, think, I think that people are inspired at times because I'm very imperfect. I have a lot of flaws and they relate to it. And, and I think that um, people relate to it because it's like, yo, I could be this dumbass, you know? And I, I'm glad they feel that way because I am like a very normal dude. I'm a very unlikely character. And I, th I think that that's a lot of what the book and, and, and my Vice show is about is like, this could be you. If you like, if you take away the barriers in your mind and you take away the fear that you have of what other people will think about you, like you could do whatever you want to do. And, and so I hope that I hope that the things I say do resonate with people and that it motivates them to go out and and be more of themselves. Like that's all I really want. I want people to question things. I don't have answers. I tell people, I can only ask you good questions, but you got to figure it out for yourself and and as much as people you could you could go to a bookstore and buy like a million a, a, a book filled with thousands of inspirational quotes, like a quote a day, you know. And I always thought that was garbage because you have to see it and experience it in, the re in real life, in your life, in the world, before those quotes hit home. They're just random orderings of words until you experience it yourself. So, yeah, I just want people to go out, get up, and, and get money and shit. <laughs> well, th this is one of the things that I think absolutely comes across in the show. What's the episode people need to see coming forward that hasn't been released yet, a fresh off the boat? You know, the best episode, I think, is the episode with my dad. When I went to go see my grandfather's ashes, that was my favorite episode all time. And I thought that was a very special episode. Um, you know, we're, we're like a family crew. The book is family. The book, the video is family. I think that's something people can relate to. Like an immigrant, you know, my father was the first to come over here. I was born like about three years after my mom arrived in America. I'm technically second generation, but I grew up with, I grew up with people who had just arrived in America. And for us to do what we have done and go back and kind of like pay respect to my grandfather, I think it's very special. And, and I think it's a very um, full circle American story. So that's my favorite episode. Coming up, we only got one episode left. And that is, uh, that's part three of Miami. Uncle Luke's part two went up today. That was really dope. Um, part three comes up next Monday and that's Chef Creole. And again, we start with family, we end with family. He got 13 kids. 
He's a Haitian immigrant with 13 kids in Miami and I believe three restaurants. So I wanted to show people, look, it's a family business. This restaurant, these restaurants feed 13 people. It's community. This is what we like to see. This is the story and the narrative food that, that we want to be around. So we end with Chef Creole. Um, going forward, we're going to do season two. So Excellent. Yeah, that's going to be amazing. Season two is great. Vice is green lighting, like more international. Because I want to like get out of America more and, and get into the guts. Well, let's, let's talk about the immigrant story quickly. Because so my mom was fresh off the boat. Yeah. I, I have, as an investor, I have a bias. If I know a kid has grown up in a household with immigrant parents or is an immigrant themselves, I feel like there's this extra hustle. There's an extra something. It's like it's an extra appreciation for what I, as someone who was born here, doesn't have for the opportunity. And, and I wonder, what do you think has been the biggest asset for you growing up in that household? You know, I, I know what you're talking about, but I do feel like it's something that, yeah, many times we have Mexican employees, we have Chinese employees, we have immigrant fresh out the boat employees that really do work so much harder than people born in America. Harder than myself, harder than my brother. But I also know a lot of kids who have fathers or mothers who are very, very wealthy and, and did their thing and they're just dying to live up to it. And they'll eat shit and they'll work hard too. So one thing I'll say is I think for the most part, yes, that is something that I see. But I don't want to establish a stereotype as immigrants as just more hardworking. For sure. But um, if you're asking me how it affects me, um, I, I felt like other people weren't telling the immigrant story. You know, it was always kind of very um, vanilla. It was very like Marcus Samuelson's Swedish immigrant story. Do you know uh -huh. what I mean? And like, I already wrote that article. Y'all already know. But um, I wanted to tell an immigrant story that was more what I like related to me and related to the other people that I grew up with and knew. And so I always had an urge to, to tell this story and to talk about the, the, the issues and the things that we face in this generation, people that grew up like me. So that was my urge, that was my fire, and that really drove me, and, and it still drives me every single day. Um, is that an, an immigrant working harder? I don't know, but that, that's the thing about my experience that drove me is I wanted to share. Why do you think it's taken so long for this story to be shared, for this kind of immigrant story to be shared? Um, that's a good question. A lot of us grow up in homes. I, I spoke primarily Chinese at home. Um, I had to work really, really hard to be the writer that I am. Um, I had to work very hard. I think language is, is an issue at times if you have parents that don't speak uh, English, you know, on a, on a high level. Uh, I also think that I also think that because it hasn't been told, a lot of people probably just thought it wasn't worth being told. Like. Um, it's it's tough to be the first, you know, like and I'm not the first there's like woman warrior There's there's joy luck club. Do you know what I mean? There's that horrible tiger mom book um, Yeah, so I'm not the first but to tell my story. Yeah, like this kind of brand of it. I guess um, People have reacted. Well, it I don't know. I think it, it was just that Most of us are just hitting 30 like people that grew up in like the golden era of the hip-hop in 80s America that saw this like urban sprawl boom in cities like Phoenix and Orlando. I mean, that's very much a part of the book as well is it's a reaction to urban sprawl. And, and it, it also is, 
uh, of, of the book is a very large proponent and, and promoter of urban cities and urban planning and things like that. So um, I think that it's just time. You know, it, it takes time to get to an age where you feel like you're ready to write it. I think you're going to see a lot more of them. Mm. And now hip hop comes up throughout the book. One of the questions that was asked in the Reddit AMA you did was about the New York hip hop scene. Who do you love right now? Who do we need to be listening to? I mean, yo, I love French Montana, you know, and, and a lot of people hate on French for his lyrics. But for me, rappers were always like superheroes. And a lot of it is like your personality and the aura that you kind of project. And like French is hilarious. Like he kind of sounds like he has Down syndrome, but he totally owns it. <laughs> and I like that a lot. So I like French. I like Action Bronson. Action Bronson, when, when he first came out, everybody hated on him because he had a flow similar to Ghostface. But he's kind of owning that flow right now. And then... Um, who else is popping? You know, uh, oh, my uh, Rock Marciano is pretty dope. Uh, ASAP ASAP is dope. ASAP is dope. I think that I think that ASAP's album was slightly disappointing, but still good. You know, um, but New York, yeah, New York is popping. Would you say the best hip hop in the country is coming out of New York right now? It's tough. Ken Kendrick runs runs it right now. Kendrick. Kendrick owns the game right now. Um, if you count Kanye as New York, I guess, because he live here, then I guess maybe New York has the crown. But Kendrick, Kendrick and that Black Hippie crew, they, they run it right now, I think. Kendrick's album is the best of the year. And I... I want to get some love for <laughs> Kendrick's album, all right. The, uh, so I have to ask, this is from Crew Dairy, uh, who asked about recipes for vegans. Everyone, uh, you, you, you mentioned how into vegetarian and vegan food you were. They're clamoring for some vegan love. Obviously, you don't want to drop a whole recipe here on stage. Yeah, but. no, there's actually a very good school in New York. It's a cooking school dedicated to like vegetarian and vegan um, food. And a lot of the recipes from that school and the textbooks they use are on display at Angelica Kitchen. And a lot of times, you know, I always have to eat at Bauhaus. Every day I, I eat at Bauhaus and I test everything and I love it. That's, that's my best meal of the day, right? But... I, I usually wake up and, and I'll go eat at Angelica Kitchen. Angelica Kitchen is really dope. I work out, I'll go to Angelica, and then I go do my thing. Huh. Yeah. And, uh, okay, most underrated and overrated food right now? Oh, man. I'm not even going to play that game because I think that that is... I'm sorry, not you. Dude, I, mean, I know this somebody is the else internet. asked it. This is the no, internet. I'm not going to play that game because I think, like, ranking culture is something I don't want to do anymore. Hmm. You know, like, I, I think I really... I never wanted to be that dude and... I just used to take interviews and be like, you ask me, I'll answer, right? But I think that's a game that people shouldn't be playing. I don't like ranking the restaurants. I don't like doing best of. Like, what do you like? What, f what do you fuck with? You know, like, yeah. what represents the kind of the culture and the ambiance in an environment? Like, do you like the staff? Do you like the owner? Do you support his values? Like, eat at places where you support the value and you support the creative output. That's what I would say. So it doesn't matter that. what I think. All right. Well... Let me see one more. Ah, here we go. Aside from your family, who are or were your biggest role models in business? In business? Business. That's a good question. I mean, he's not a good dude, but I loved when Suge Knight said, come to death row. Like, that shit was so hard. <laughs> and I definitely liked, I remember growing up watching Pac and, and how C. Dolores Tucker and all those senators and they had the hearings about literally trying to ban hip hop. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I remember watching and I was like, they can't touch them because as entrepreneurs, Suge and Pog and all these rappers in the 90s, 
their audience, their fans supported them 100. And I think the most important lesson I learned from hip hop, at least on, as an entrepreneur, is it doesn't matter what anyone thinks besides you and the people who you are speaking to. You know, people will hate on you because you're different and they don't want you to be out there and you threaten their way of life and you threaten their culture. But they can't touch you if you have a flow of money, you know? Like, if people are buying it, people buying Pac back and they senators, they can't do shit about it. So the thing I think that the people really have to understand in getting free and having no shame is get money. You get money, you get free. And, and then there's money, power, respect. Like the locks told you, money, power, respect. So it's very important. You get the money, then you get the power, then you get the respect. And I, that's exactly how I built my life. So Pac and the locks. Mm. There you go. All right, well, we got a little bit of time. We have a little bit of time for Q&A from the audience. Hey, how you doing? We were just talking about hip-hop and how much hip-hop's influenced you. And I mean, at your restaurant alone, you play classics pretty much. Yeah. Is there any, like, you just talked about Suge Knight and Pac, but is there any rapper, you know, that, or any musician or what have you that influences the way you do business or you as a chef or you in general? All of the labels, I really liked... You know, I love Master P when Master P came out. No joke. When he had, like, the plastic jewel cases with different colors, I was like, that's branding. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just bought a pair of sunglasses that looked like Master P's, like, really, really extra gold frames. Like, I don't know. All of them. Diddy. Diddy as an entrepreneur got things on smack. Like, Ciroc. That was very, very smart. So, I mean, I, I think there's so much to learn from the business of hip-hop because it's something that people didn't want to happen. And it was, a, it was stigmatized as a deviant culture, something people didn't want to come up. So, and the business is always changing. Like with the, with the business models, like Decon has a very interesting business model now. So yeah, I, I, I think, you know, you gotta, you gotta watch Diddy. Ho, Hove is very interesting. Hove got like a very like, I don't know, that mainstream business plan, you know, but I, I kind of... Careful, Eddie. Yeah, no. That's, that's, you know, a, that's a special yeah. spot here. Yeah, he loved the Barclay Center. I can't really fuck with it. Oh, that's just because he's a Knicks yeah. fan. Nobody's perfect, though. Yeah. No, but when you got, like, a place that's like Williamsburg Grill, Park Slope Burger, I'm like, yo, you kind of just co-opting all neighborhoods in Brooklyn, and it's like an Epcot, so not down with Brooklyn Epcot. Sorry. I'm gonna talk to Jay about that. I mean, I love Brooklyn. I'm gonna text him after I'm, this. I love Brooklyn, but that's destroying that. That arena is destroying Brooklyn. Get oh, Knicks tickets next oh, year. Oh no, dude! Get Knicks I, tickets. I do, like Deron, I do like Deron Williams though. Deron Williams is reading the he's book got, right now. So really, that's what's going yeah. Deron, tell Deron to start playing some ball. He's he's, yeah. he's been oh Deron balling. Like no, not the last few. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what's what is interesting though too is. Uh, for a long time, while trying to stifle it, it was also very much dismissed as a fad, right? And it hip hop oh, clearly no, not. No, 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 my fault, my fault. Wu-Tang. Wu-Tang had, they were the first one to have Wu wear. Like, that whole shit, everybody copied them having the clothing line. Wu-Tang is the most interesting brand in hip hop. They crossed over. Number one, my most proud day as an Asian in America was when I heard Protect Your Neck. And I was like, oh shit, they fucking with us? They fucking with us? They fucking with us? I was so excited, I remember on the way to school in seventh grade, listening to like the intros and outros on 36 Chambers. 
I was like, yo, I'm, I'm going to take Kung Fu a lot more seriously right now. But, <laughs> no, I loved, I loved Wu. And, and, you know, Wu Corp is, is just very interesting. That whole model that Power has, like I'm homies with Power, been friends with Power for a minute. And what they do at Wu-Tang is very, very revolutionary. And also, the, the best concert series of all time was when Wu went on tour with Rage Against the Machine. That was the illest, natural, organic crossover concert that drew just rebellion, people, the youth cultural rebellion, like, that was so ill. And to watch the images of all these diverse people at, you know, the shows, just with the W's up, like, I get chills every time I see that video. So, Wu-Tang, definitely. And we got movies with Tarantino. That's right. One, uh, one more question? Yeah, um... If, uh, what, what do you think the kids uh, coming up today have as far as obstacles? And then if you have something you want to say, I don't know if you had like one thing uh, to tell everyone. Kids, what obstacles kids have? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think obviously socioeconomics and, and where you're from, it, it, it presents different challenges. But I wrote about it a few months ago. I really like that show Girls, right? I really, really like Girls. And I think that this generation experiences like an embarrassment of riches. And there's an embarrassment of riches. There's so many things that you can do. There's so many DIY opportunities. And I think people are paralyzed by opportunity. There's so many choices. And then they're trying to be like, which, which one is the best one? But you just got to just go and you got to do it. You got to fail and you got to succeed. All of it. Because it all makes you who you are. Um, I also think that the previous generation is always fucking envious of what the next generation has. In, in my day and age, we didn't have this. In my day and age, there was a soda jerk. Like, well, go back to your fucking day and age. Do you know what I mean? My thing is, is that we can't let the generation before us tell us what we're supposed to do or what they expect. And I think that the expectations of our parents and the previous generation and, and all the things that they expect us to do are a burden. And I think that we have to, like, think as our generation, read that Ralph Waldo Emerson, that American scholar, because every generation has to write its own books. You know, and all the people before us were just young men in libraries, and that's what Emerson talks about. So I think that it's very, very important for us to like, not listen to the haters of old, and also not be paralyzed by all the opportunity, and to just go get it on a daily basis. That's a good question, thank you. What's next for Eddie Wong? Season two of Vice is gonna be popping, and then, uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna just disappear. Oh, Bauhaus, whole new menu Thursday. Like, I've been in the lab for a minute. For the whole last year, I've been really working new recipes and kind of like digging up old ones from my family, and we're paring the menu down. Like, I thought I went in the wrong direction with Bauhaus when I opened the second one. When I introduced like more items on the permanent menu, and I was like, in that small space, only 475 square feet, when I committed to like 12 permanent items, it gave me no space or ability to do specials. So we're going back to the original menu, four bows, the chair, the bird, the house, the Jesse, and every month we're gonna have new specials, new kanji, noodles, rice, pig's feet, all that, all the things that kids like. And uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna remix it every single month and keep it fresh because even me, I got bored working there because it wasn't fresh. I felt like I wasn't needed. But now with this new format, I'm very excited. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm just be back in Bauhaus because I really miss it. I really, writing the book really took me away. I really miss it. All right.
Thank you for coming, y'all. Yeah, thank you very much. Buy the books, support Asian business. Yes, you can get it on the iBook store as well.